When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1078. It's podcast time. Well, first it's corkboard time, then it'll be podcast time in a couple minutes. But right now, it's the ID10T Community Corkboard time. Events at ID10T.com to get your thing mentioned on the corkboard, like Virginia, who writes, I heard you over and over again for years, and I finally did it. I made something I really believe in. I'm a college professor, and after testing this with my own students, took the plunge and created a beautiful academic planner with an online interface. It teaches time management, the number one reason students fail out of college, and tools for college success. It's a professor in a planner, if that makes sense, but not a snooty professor, a caring teaching professor. Each week features a QR code that links to a short but powerful tutorial on an aspect of college success. For example, better note-taking, how writing by hand activates the brain and improves recall, etc. I'll attach a page so you can see what I mean, and she did, and it looks fantastic. Um, she said she also included sections for gratitude to increase happiness and self-awareness to increase self-awareness. <laughs> you can find the planner at thecenteredstudentplanner.com. Thecenteredstudentplanner.com. Virginia, this is a gorgeous idea. I, I don't even know if this is just going to be limited to college students. If you're talking about time management and how to take notes, how to express more gratitude, how to be more self-aware. I mean, maybe it was aimed at college students, but I think this could expand beyond that. So I'm going to check this out. But really, 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 really fantastic job. Congratulations. I'm so glad you made a thing. And this is just a, a note to anyone else who's thinking about make a thing. Make a thing, and uh, and then I'll try, try to mention it on the corkboard. Thank you so much, Virginia. Uh, TheCenteredStudentPlanner.com, and if you want to get your thing mentioned, events at ID10T.com. This episode is Max Brooks, who is my dear friend Max Brooks, who is such a... He's like the most, one of the most stunningly smart dudes I know. He's the smartiest of pants. Um, Max is promoting his new book, Devolution, which is a Sasquatchy-themed uh, story, which sounds amazing. It is available now wherever books are sold. 
Um, so get that. And there's also an audible.com version that is a fully performed, um, kind of in the way World War Z was, fully performed version on Audible. I bought that. I'm excited to listen to it. Um, we recorded this almost two full months ago at the posting of this episode. Uh, today is June 30th. And got the really uh, unfortunate news that uh, Carl Reiner passed away today. Um, and so I'd, I'd shot Max a text because, you know, Carl and and Max's dad, Mel, were the best of friends. And um, Max had sort of described them as a married couple, uh, but they spent all of their time together. And so, you know, Carl lived an amazingly long and fruitful life. He was 98 years old. Mel just turned 94, but uh, I'm sure that doesn't make it any less heartbreaking. So just sending all sorts of love and hugs to Mel and Max and the Reiner family. Um, I had the pleasure and privilege of talking to Carl on the phone once, and you can understand how that would just be tucked away in the vault of some of my most treasured memories. I was actually pitching him something over the phone, and he was so warm and so encouraging and so receptive. You can imagine how unbelievably nervous I was. But, uh, I mean, he's a comedy legend, and not just a legend, but like a pioneer. He is a legend who is also a comedy pioneer. When you look back at the influence he's had on sort of modern comedy and the things that he's worked on and the stuff that he and Mel have done, and and even beyond being a, a career inspiration, he's also their friendship is an inspiration that they've been, they were friends for so long. And also just as an individual, as I said, he was so, so sweet. And I was just even just briefly looking at Instagram today and just seeing all these wonderful Carl Reiner stories that folks were, were posting. So apparently he was just such a delightful man and, um, he will really, really, really be missed on this plane of existence. So, uh, now let's get into the podcast This is the ID10T episode number 1078 with Mr. Max Brooks returning for, gosh, I don't know if this is the third or fourth time, but hopefully it won't be the last. Uh, Here we go. Roll the thing. Initiating ID10T protocol. I'm good, Chris Hardwick. How are you, sir? Are you at that big house that I visited that time? We're here, yes. We're here. We're here. We're here at our house. I'm sitting probably seven feet away from the dark helmet that your dad signed. Awesome. Which uh, is still one of my favorite stories. How are you surviving this? We're doing fine. I mean, we're 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 very lucky that we have a little bit of space and we have a dog to distract us and we have you know, we have the food and stuff that we need and um and so we're just you know, we're we're and we have each other and so we're 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 hanging in there. I mean, 
it was Mother's Day. My mom came over. We had a socially distanced little barbecue with my mom. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh, it's 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 odd. How are you? Uh, we're very lucky. You know, I mean, the worst thing that's happened to us is is my wife lost a college friend. Oh no. And another buddy of mine lost his best friend. But, uh, but you know, family, thank God. You know, given that my dad is 93 and my mother-in-law has had lung cancer twice, uh, whew, are we lucky for the moment. But I imagine they're not going anywhere either. They're not, your dad's probably not running around town. No, you know, the video that I posted of sort of me talking to him through glass, that was real. Like we go over to his house once a week. And uh, we talk to him through the window. And if he opens up the window, we talk to him through the screen door. We back up another six feet. Right, 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 right. Oh, my gosh. It's just so eh. – the, the, the hard part is that you want to you wanna hug your parents, you know? Yeah. And it – I'm just – I try not to go to a place of like, uh, well – I, I hope I can hug them again at some point, you know, like what if I don't get to hug them at like, it's the, the, the real, the part, part of the steeplechase of this, the mental steeplechase of this yeah. is living very much in the present and, you know, not going to all of the worst case scenarios, which is something I do under normal circumstances, yeah. like, you know, catastrophizing. So the exercise of like, don't, you know, today, I'm, you know, your mom's okay, your wife's okay, your dog's okay. Just focus on that and deal with tomorrow, tomorrow. That has been a real interesting exercise. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The exact same with me. I mean, I, I, I think to myself, my dad's 93. Hopefully he lives another 10 years and breaks some records. But, you know, every second is precious. And he used to come over every night for dinner. And he can't do that now. And right. And my son... Has precious little time left with him. I've had, I've been blessed to have forty seven, about to be forty eight years with him. But my son's only fifteen, and every second counts. And it's it's a it's a tragedy. You know, your dad of all people, I feel like can easily live to one hundred and five. He he's he's just one of those guys. I, I always use him as an example of, you know, um, your dad and Joan Rivers, who died in a very unnatural way. Right but people who stay curious and stay focused and stay engaged and who ask questions and who want to learn and who have a joy in what they do, that does keep people alive and healthy and relevant longer, it seems. You're right. He's, he's got a brilliant, active mind. And, uh, and so that is keeping him alive. Thank God he's not, he's not wasting away. Yeah. Yeah. Because I understand, you know, as you and I are, I think, exactly the same age. And as we are, you know, like well into our middle-aged years, it is easy to sort of go like, I don't know, like maybe I don't really need, it's a lot of energy to start up new stuff and to listen to new things and to engage. And it's so easy to get lazy. It's so, uh, it's so alluring to, to be lazy. Oh, yeah. And the world is getting more and more different every day. You can see why older people tune out. And you can also see the difference in political campaigns, where if if you're playing to the young vote, it's all about a brave new world. It's all about change. It's all about, uh, you know, adapting. Whereas if you're if you're playing to an older crowd, it's like we're going back. Right. Remember, Remember when you felt king of the castle? 
going back to those days. Right, 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 right. Well, it, you know, it's because it requires like forming new, uh, new neural pathways requires energy and we have less energy as we get older. But I also, the, the simplicity, you know, we sort of look at older people and we, you know, and they sort of say like, ah, you know, like I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been because I just don't need anything now. And I've pared down and it's simpler. And when you're young, you're like, you can't even process that. And now I'm starting to go like, oh yeah, because you know, if you don't have a lot of attachments to external material things, then you don't have to stress about, you don't have to unnecessarily stress. There is a certain wisdom in, you know, uh, in, not being so tweaked up over every little thing. And, but I guess if you live a long time, you go, Oh, well, you know, like I survived a lot of stuff and, and I wish I hadn't worried about things so much. Yeah. You know, there was, there came a time in my life, I think probably when I went to college, when my parents and my parents friends started getting rid of stuff and I didn't understand it. And my mom would try to explain to me, she said, you know, you, you reach a point in your life where you realize the stuff you own owns you. Right. And I'm, I was only recently becoming aware of that. And now th- having to quarantine really makes me aware of it because now I am my own cook and cleaner and handyman and electrician and painter. Uh, <laughs> wow. Wow. A house is a lot of work. <laughs> it is like one of, there's, there's one episode of the Simpsons where Marge has the kitchen totally clean and then the door swings and in that swing, the kitchen is a disaster again. Yeah, yeah. And it is, uh, it, it, it is that kind of thing where you go, oh my God, how are we pigs? Like how in a day did we manage to generate this much, <laughs> this many dirty dishes, this much, yeah. you know, like garbage, this much trash, this much, you know, so it, it is, it's just stuff that we don't, we're, we're being forced to pay attention to things that, in our, you know, busy workaday lives, we generally don't pay attention to. Oh my God. The, you know, <clears throat> and, and you, you really are aware of cause and effect because we used to either go out to eat or we'd order in all the time. And because we recycled and we composted, I didn't feel bad about that. But now right. we cook, we cook every day and the dishes. Wow. <laughs> where do they come from (laughs) and you know on top of that is the anxiety like oh my god what if the dishwasher breaks oh yeah yeah i I can't have a guy in to get a new one not yet so Mm. oh my god i'll be hand washing every (laughs) single dish (laughs) what like a cave person <laughs> you know, meanwhile, my dad grew up in the Depression and fought in World War II. So, you know. yes, these are very privileged complaints that we're having about dishwashers and whatnot. I mean, and, but you do understand. It also is an interesting insight into, you know, like my my grandfather, my dad's father, was very much like, if there's food on your plate, you have to eat it. You oh can't yeah, waste a crumb because he grew up during that period of time in the depression and it, and it left an indelible mark on him. And then the, the successive generations sort of reveled in how much we could waste, how right. much we could own, how much we could waste. And so there was less emphasis on it. And so, you know, he, it, 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 he would look like a dinosaur, you know, like you need to finish, but you understand we're going through a crisis now and what, what, what triggers is this going to create for us and our generation yeah. and on the next generation, for future generations and who are going to look at us and go, what the fuck is your problem? You don't know. We lived through blah, blah, blah. 
and you know, but we're gonna we're gonna pick up quirks. Oh yeah, I mean, I wonder, I wonder what we will take out of it because for the last two months, I've become my grandmother. You know, I we wash out plastic bags. I say I use that line in Biloxi Blues about about dinner. I say to my son, "You eat what you want, but you take what you eat." We don't waste food around here. Yep. Um, and you know, my grandmother and even my mother, because my mother was greatest generation. They used to shriek at me if I went outside on a cold day with wet hair. You, know, <laughs> you can catch a cold. Now, who cares? But at a time now when you can't go to the doctor, when even going to the pharmacy has a risk, uh, you know, I say now with my son, I'm like, he's like, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go outside. I'm like, no, you dry your hair first. It's dark outside. It's cold outside. You're not going outside with wet hair. Oh yeah. No, I know. I, uh, a week ago, um, cut my finger, my middle finger really badly because we had had a broken, like a, I had a dish in my hands, like a serving dish in my hands a couple days before and it slipped and a piece of it broke off. And there was a shard, like a ceramic shard that was like behind the paper towel, uh, roll yes. on the counter. And Two days later, I'd forgotten about the dish and I just saw this thing on the counter and I thought it was food or something. So I just, like a chimp, just grabbed at it full full throttle and it sank into my middle finger and it, it was bad. And so I texted, the, I took a video of it and texted it to our, our regular doctor who is like 80 years old. Like he's in the highest risk group, so he's not practicing yeah, right now. And his assistant said... Well, he thinks you should probably go to urgent care. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to go to urgent care and clog urgent care with a cut and yeah. also like risk, you know, bringing home the virus because, and she goes, well, I don't know what else to tell you. We do, we can recommend to you and uh, a service where like a doctor can come to your house. And, you know, again, I'm very fortunate that I was able to partake in that because a doctor came over. He had mask on. I had two masks on. I didn't face him. I held my hand out. He cleaned it and uh, gl- and basically used this like bioderm to glue it shut. Otherwise, it it was bad. Like it needed stitches. Right. right. And, and it, there was that feeling of helplessness. Like, what the fuck? What am I supposed to do? I, my finger's cut. I don't think I can. So, you know, it, it's just been a very, oh, it, yeah. it is a very strange, it is a very strange time because all those things that we took for granted before. It's like, you have to be very aware now of what you do. Oh yeah. I, I had a scene from my new book literally play out in my house. There's a scene in, in devolution where when they're cut off and the, the ashes from the volcano are coming on the solar panels, falling on the solar panels, the husband says, I'm going to go and clean them off on the roof. And she says, you can't, what if you fall? We can't get you to the hospital. And the neighbor says, yeah. Also, if you're stuck on the couch with a broken leg, you go from being a giver to a taker. Right. And that exact same thing happened to us because remember a, a month ago it was raining and I thought, you know what? I should go up on the roof and I should <laughs> clean the gutters. And my wife was like, no, if you fall, we can't get you to the hospital. And even if you're, if, even if you've got a twisted ankle, you're sitting on the couch, you're not cooking, you're not cleaning, you're not contributing. In our nation of three, four, if you count the dog, yeah. one quarter of that nation becomes a consumer. Yeah, your wife's like, don't you understand if, you, if you're if you on the couch with a twisted angle, we have to kill you and consume you for protein. Yeah. Like you, you you all of a sudden become our food. I and become the feel- fertilizer in my own vegetable garden. 
so at least you're, you're giving back, you know, like you're yeah. still able to, you're still able to contribute. That is interesting that, uh, you know, like you've, You've you've written a lot about apocalypses and also given many talks on pot- potential apocalyptic events, and so th- this is a very, in a weird way, you've kind of studied for something like this in a yeah. way. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because you know, my first you know zombie survival guide was kind of opened the door. The researching of zombie survival guide really made me aware of how many threads it takes to hold the fabric of society together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Zombie Survival Guide was the micro level, just you or maybe you in a group against the world. And then World War Z was, oh my God, this planet, this, this civilization we call the human race depends on this network of communication and trade and logistics and herd immunity. And you start to snip those away. Oh my God! A lot of people are going to die without ever having seen a zombie. So yeah, I've I've done I've done a lot of work on that. And so, ironically, I knew this was coming months ago. The the former president of the United States Naval War College, Admiral Weiskopf, called me. I was I, I was sick in bed with the flu. At least I think it was the flu. And he says to me you need to look, you need to go online and you need to see what's happening with China. And I went on and I looked at this new virus in Wuhan and I thought this is going to be really bad because it's got a two week asymptomatic incubation period, which means it's either already here or it's making its way around the world and taking people's temperatures around the airport. That ain't going to stop it. Mm -hmm. And so I started prepping as soon as I got out of my sick bed. Because this was this was not going to be good. And did it uh, at that point? Did he have any other information, or he just said this is something that you want to be aware of? <laughs> no, I mean he was he was president now of a, of a university in North Dakota, and he was trying to prep his his uh, university and his state for it. But together, we were sort of looking at all the data that we could, and the shock of this was. And the anger, the fury was that we have a plan for this. We have something called the National Response Framework. We have, it's the Master Disaster Plan. Open source, by the way. You don't have to sneak and find it like the Pentagon Papers. The government wants you to read this. And it, it details everything from the president all the way down to like the local mayor. Every job for every person. And, they even, and it has annexes. Natural disaster, war, terrorism, biological incident, plague. So literally, we would not have had to have thought up anything. If we had had competent leadership, we literally could have flicked a switch back in January and been ready for this thing. Yep. Yep. Well, I... It, that didn't happen. No. <laughs> so here we are. And I also find it interesting that the other thing that you've written that is oddly similar is Extinction Parade, which obviously has a supernatural element of like, you know, vampires sort of being the ruling class and and some of them going like, hey, wait a minute, uh, you know, our natural resource, which is living humans, are becoming zombies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and then the rest of them going, "Yeah, fuck you." <laughs> what yeah. do you know? They had, they had no. I was trying to create the 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 lesson, or trying to impart the lesson 
of when you're so interdependent and you, it never even occurs to you that something might go wrong. These pampered parasites that are vampires, a few of them realize, oh my God, what are we going to live on? Yeah. But they have no survival skills because they've been apex predators. They're top of the food chain. They have their little wren fields doing all the shit jobs for them. And suddenly they got to take care of themselves. Whereas the humans are in a much better position because life ain't easy. And so, yeah, that was, that was a powerful lesson for these poor vampires. This was not. Well, and (laughs) in all these stories, there's the, you know, like in Walking Dead or in, in Extinction Parade, or there's so many apocalypse tales about how, you know, uh, comfort is the enemy of survival, where, well, I, maybe it's complacency, not, I, you know, comfort, I think, is maybe not the right, you know, like, the, it, it, obviously, human beings seek comfort, but we sort of crave and become addicted to complacency or convenience well, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think I think it's it's not comfort. It's comfort at the expense of resilience. Right. You know, but that's the, I, hard to know when it's okay to. Yeah. It just it's it's just it's a slippery slope because you know like well everything's okay today. Well everything was okay yesterday. Ah, you know everything's probably good. Like we want to be able to let go, and maybe that's one of the effects that it will take a long time before we're able to sort of settle back in and, you know, like not be agoraphobic and be able to trust being in public spaces and hugging people again. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think, I think you said the magic word. I think it is trust. I think the, the idea is our institutions have to prove that they can protect us in order for us to trust them again. That's why up until, I don't know, certainly up until the 1960s, Government worked really hard to validate itself. You know, if I'm going to compromise your personal liberties, if I'm going to take some of your money for taxes, uh, I got to give you something. So I'm going to give you security, safety, trust, the ability to to be comfortable. And then we started turning on government, saying, ah, what's the point? Because they did such a good job of it, the next generation grew up and took it for granted. (laughs) Well, but I also don't know how, I don't know how anyone could listen, in a country of 350 million people, in our case, you know, you just, there's enough people that, you know, even if you can't control like 0.1% of them in terms of like what they're going to do and they're going to, you know, go out and do whatever they want, or they're not going to sort of like, you know, work together as a group. It's first even deciding what the right thing to do is. And then on top of that, you know, there's just always going to be people who go out and kind of do whatever the fuck they want. It's like, I don't know how anyone can could really rein in everyone with, you know, like it, it, it just seems like a, it just oh, seems yeah, like no, a, Yeah, I agree. Especially in this country. I think the only thing you can do is, is enforce consequences without curtailing freedom. Let them have their freedom, but then they must pay the penalty. If you want to go, uh, if you want to go surfing and you don't want to wear a mask and you want to live and infect yourself, that's fine. That's your, your right to get infected, but you don't have the right to infect me. Therefore, uh, you don't have the right to go to the movie theater. You don't have the right to send your kid to my school. You don't have the right to put your infection anywhere near me. It's the same way like we have the right to drink alcohol if you're overage. You do not have the right to drink alcohol and get behind the wheel of a car because then that makes it society's problems. Right. And that's the way to do it is to say, listen, if you don't want to pay into the club of civilization, 
that's fine. But you don't get to enjoy the benefits of that club without paying your dues. Well, and just the, the, the thing now is just no one really knowing, you know, obviously the, 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 the strain on mental health of just not knowing about the future and just like everything being unknown. I mean, oh. listen, I think as human beings, we create a false sense of, we create like this sort of false security bubble that's very delicate, but it allows us to sort of, you know, get into a routine without taking yeah. on the, you know, the greater existential questions on a daily basis and kind of get through what we need to get through. And now, you know, with people going, yeah, I don't know when, you know, like, when's it going to be like, what's normal anymore? When's it going to be? I don't know. How are you? You know, so it it, like that is, that's also the, uh, another huge strain is just, is the uncertainty. We, you know, like human beings need certainty. I think we do crave a bit of uncertainty, keep things exciting, but certainly not this much. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I, think, I think the problem is the, the mixed messaging, which is driving us all crazy. You, know, we're, you and I are old enough to remember the, the downslope of the AIDS crisis, where what saved us from the panic and the hysteria, because we went from denial to panic, to finally understanding was we had a, a, a single message and a single messenger. Remember we had C. Everett Coop, that Amish admiral, he looked like an Amish admiral. So, and he would go on TV and he would explain to us, this is what AIDS is. Here's how you get it. Here's how you don't get it. Here's how you protect yourself. And it was like, wow, now I know what the rules of the game are. Okay. And you, you know, the department of, uh, I don't know if it was the CDC or um, health and human services, but under C. Everett Coop, a pamphlet called Understanding AIDS was mailed out to every single household in the United States. I went, when this all started, I went back on YouTube and I found all his PSAs. And there's a little baby Johnny Depp with his 1980s bangs and his gorgeous good looks. And him and C. Everett Coop are explaining to us what AIDS is and how to protect ourselves. And oh, we wow. don't have anything like that now. We well, don't I have a think because no one really understands, you know, like it's we've had to go on a bit of a of a news diet because we because we know that like I'll I'll have like on the regular news feeder that I that I would look at, you know, normally you get so many contradictive so many contradicting stories about what's going on, you know, it's mutating this way. No, it's actually mutating this way. No, it's mutating neither of those ways. And so I think also the rush to get information out, yeah, it's sort of just become uh, a little bit like I, I don't know what to believe because I don't know like which, and everything seems to contradict each other, which says to me that we kind of just don't really understand exactly what's going on fully, <clears throat> and so uh, oh yeah, rather oh, than, no. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I'm watching I just watched today. Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, testifying for Congress. And this is the problem, is, is the smarty smarts don't know how to communicate with the rest of us. But the dum-dums are great talkers. So there's, there's Rand Paul saying, so we're going to open the meat plants, right? Because uh, most of them have the virus, which means they are, they're immune, right? They're immune. And Fauci's like, well, in most cases, it is likely that in other viruses, when you contract it, you some form of immunity. However, long-term studies, blah, blah, blah. Fauci would have been, should have just said, no, we don't know. You don't know. <laughs> with, with, your, with your bad toupee and your plague beard, 
You don't know that there's immunity. Wait for the facts. Otherwise, shut up. But we don't really know when all those facts are going to come in, right? We just are, right. we're just right. sort of like waiting and every day sort of hoping someone's going to come out and go, okay, guys, got it all sorted. Here it is. Yeah. yeah. Do ABC, XYZ will happen. Then you can do this, that, and the other. And, uh, <laughs> and we just don't have that. But, but the idea, the, the sort of the broader idea of sort of uh, humans needing certainty and how do we mentally survive mm-hmm. in, in an uncertain in an uncertain world is, um, is really, you know, it's one that I think will have some, uh, you at least longer range mental consequences, not unlike what we were talking about with our grandparents, with the greatest generation, you know, the way that they always sort of focused on things living through a, a national, national tragedy. And, and, and my hope is that now, because, the the discussions around mental health are so much more common than they were, you know, almost a hundred years ago that people are having conversations focusing on their mental health, you know, like being mindful, you know, like, Hey, I feel like shit today, but I'm talking about it. So it's helping process it. So yeah. my, my hope is that it, you know, that we will be able to, as a culture really have healthy conversations about it to, to get through, you know, whatever the next handful of months brings. I hope so. I hope you're right. I hope that that if there is any if any good comes out of this catastrophe, that we don't take public health for granted anymore. Because this couldn't this couldn't have hit us any time other than right now at this point in history. Because we've lost enough of the greatest generation that now America's old people, most of America's old people, are baby boomers who grew up with <laughs> vaccines. Right. You know, they don't they don't have that gut fear of disease the way uh, greatest generation did. You know, uh, I think that, that we really did sort of take health for granted and maybe hopefully us, you know, us Gen Xers, cause we're in the middle now, we're the parents, we're the parents and the kids. And <laughs> I blame the eighties on, uh, <laughs> Hey everybody, come on. We're flush with cash. Go out and buy a bunch of shit. It's okay. You can have whatever you want. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and government's not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. <laughs> you know, I, I hope that we do come out of this and say, you know what, we need to listen to experts. We need to believe in science, and and we need to we need to believe in things like taking care of our bodies and medicine and vaccines. Because let me tell you, when there is a vaccine and it's been proven safe and effective, and there's still people who do not want to get it, oh. An island must be found. That's I was just all thinking I'm saying. about. I was thinking about what it'll be like if you know, in like, I don't know, six months or whatever. You know, if you're allowed to go in like a movie theater in six months, I, I have no idea what the timeline is. I'm just spitballing. But like in six months, you know, or or next year, whatever, you're in a crowded movie theater and you just hear, <laughs> and then yep. the audible gasp of everyone, get out. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, I mean, I think the only solution if a vaccine comes out and people don't want to voluntarily take it, we make a deal with Canada to buy or lease Baffin Island, and we just call it AV Anti Vaxistan. Okay. And we just say, listen, you don't, you don't, you don't believe it? Good for you. You think kale and hot yoga going to stop polio? Great. Go, go, enjoy. God bless you. 
Uh, <laughs> we're gonna, <laughs> I like that uh, you that you added the Istan at the end to make it like a real a real ta- a real city. Yeah, you know, just anti-vaxistan. Just go go there, have fun, do your hot goat yoga and your your sound baths, and whatever the internet tells you about public about health, believe it, because you can. Because you're not sending your kid to my kid's school. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash wondery, all lowercase, Go to shopify.com slash Wondery to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash Wondery. Here's what your, this is a feel like a little out of left field, but what's your favorite old Twilight Zone episode? Oh my God. You know, it's funny. I just started watching that with my son. I watch Twilight Zone. I've, you know, like I, I always wake up in the middle of the night at like, you know, three or four in the morning, usually to pee, but then I can't go back to sleep for a while. And so I just like on a regular rotation, I just put on Twilight Zone episodes and I love them because I find them, a lot of them still weirdly applicable. Like a lot of the messaging is still weirdly oh, applicable. Oh God, yeah. And, uh, and so I'm cur- I was curious to know like if you have a favorite episode and what it's about and what it addresses. Oh God, yeah. No, I loved. Uh, I I love. What was the one with little Anthony? You know, it's good that you're making it snow. It's really good. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. With that uh, Billy Moomy, it's um, it's a good life. Yeah, I think it's it's a good life where he's the, this all powerful being in the town, and everyone's everyone's thoughts are controlled, and everyone's like oh, no yeah. one can have a bad thought, and yeah. He yeah, holds the entire town hostage. And I'm shocked that they could write that at that point in history, because as a parent, what resonates with me is I sometimes I see other parents and they they adapt the entire world around their children. And, you know, I I laugh because I think like that poor kid's going to is either going to have to live in this bubble the rest of his life or he's going to go out and the world is going to just beat him into uh, just jello pudding pops because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the world don't give a shit. But I mean, because we know what this was. This was about clearly who uh, the I think it, did Rod Serling write that one? 
Uh, let me see. He, no. Uh, oh, it doesn't, hang on. I'm, I'm looking up, the, I'm on the Wikipedia page now. It was, yeah, it was written by Rod Serling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because you could see that he, I mean, in my mind, I imagine him like going to like, I don't know, his his sister's house and like watching his nephew just, you know, terrorizing <laughs> well, I everyone. I thought about it that way. You know, I always took it, I took it very literally <laughs> like, oh, there's this all powerful being and basically, you know, it's very, it's kind of weirdly Orwellian that they live in this culture where they have to, you know, think certain things and say certain things and behave in certain ways and they can never, but I guess you're right. It is sort of the ultimate guide to like, codependent child rearing <laughs> oh yeah i mean I, I watched it again when my son was very little my wife had over her her old family friend his wife his little boy my son's age and my son henry goes to give him a hug goodbye and then the little boy just shoves him back goes no now instead of the mom saying hey hey josh we don't we don't do that say you're sorry she goes well josh he doesn't like to be hugged we do the one in <laughs> our house <laughs> And I mean, I just thought like, wow, guess who's never coming to our house again? (laughs) But I mean, what a precedent to set for a child who actually thinks the entire world goes, it's good that you're doing that. It's really good. So boy, Rod Serling, nice shot. Yeah. So there are two episodes that I, that I love that I think you might enjoy one of them is called uh, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Oh, we just saw that one. Love oh, isn't that, that fucking great? Oh, wow. So for people listening, it's basically this actor named Claude Akins is in it. This other actor named Jack Weston is in it. And it's basically about a, it's about paranoia. Yeah. And it's about um, the thin fabric of social connections that this neighborhood like the they hear the sound they over the neighborhood and then like the lights all go out and then they come on in some people's houses and some guy's car starts up and then they all basically start turning on each other well why is his lights on well he must be and then yeah. they essentially rip each other apart and then there's a obviously the standard twilight zone twist at the end which I won't give away for people who haven't seen it but it's an, it's such an interesting those are the ones that are like that is an enduring tale of humanity and paranoia and self-survival and the fragility of our social bonds. It, it, it makes me so angry that all science fiction today is, is not on that same standard anymore. Because as you and I both know, sci-fi, oh my God, what it used to teach us, all the lessons and everything. I mean, reading Starship Troopers again, I was like, oh my God, how did Heinlein, this was back when The Greatest Generation was running everything. How could he predict uh, a society of just spoiled narcissists who live for nothing but themselves. Wow. Well, but, you know, particularly though, back back in those days, they had to express these larger ideas about humanity, these sort of progressive ideas through science fiction, because it would have been much more difficult for them to, they didn't have a platform to, right, right. you know, like now we can kind of hit things head on and go, this is wrong and that's wrong and we need to talk about this. But back then, in order to make it digestible for the ma- for the mainstream people who didn't want the, you know, the apple cart upset for whatever dumb reason, they had to express these ideas so that people could actually like digest them either consciously or subconsciously rather than just coming out and pointing a finger and saying like, hey, y'all are fucked up and here's why. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're right. We, we couldn't 
we couldn't talk about race relations. So in Star Trek, we had to have a guy with black on one side of his face and white on the other, fighting a guy with white on his face and black on the other. And Right. And that's, that, that is sort of the, you know, the foundations of why sci-fi and horror are so important as genres and why they were so important, you know, in the fabric of our culture and being able to address um, very important progressive ideas and, and sink into a younger generation who would then, you know, like really take those to heart, maybe even in ways they didn't even realize to evolve them. And so it's, uh, it's a really, it, it's the Twilight Zone is such a great for, and it's on, there are four of the seasons are on Netflix, but there is a season of the Twilight Zone. Seasons one, two, three, and five are on Netflix, but season four is on iTunes. And season four was the season where they did hour longs. And honestly, what I realized with the hour longs, the Twilight Zone is a much better half hour show. The, the hour longs tend to drag on a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah, but, but they're still great. But the other one that I absolutely love is called um, uh, A Nice Place to Visit, which is, a, it's the one where the guy, the criminal basically dies and then he, he goes to heaven, he, you know, he thinks he's in heaven and he's, because they're giving him everything he wants. The Twilight Zone has this sort of thing of like, be careful what you wish for over and over again. Yeah. And the idea that getting everything you want would could actually be an evil thing because again we we can't handle complacency and we can't we we can't handle utopia you know it's sort of like in the matrix when agent smith said like we we designed a utopia for you people and you you the, you couldn't handle it <laughs> because right. it's your nature to destroy <laughs> you know like the those ideas are really 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 interesting because we all have things we want or things we think are going to make our lives better and there's this constant idea of like you know no thing can fix you no fuck you this time it's different this thing's gonna fix me okay good luck you know and i love that they were addressing addressing that too It, it really i hope that at some point there's a university that will give a course in sort of deconstructing the the philosophical underpinnings of the episodes of that series because they're pretty fucking deep. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, even the sentimental ones. I mean, I think my favorite sort of heartstrings one is when the guy dies and and his dog dies and he thinks he's going to the, remember the, yeah. the checkpoint for heaven? Yeah. And the guy at the guard gate is like, no, no dogs allowed. And he's like, well, if there's no dogs allowed, then it's no heaven to me. Yep. And then he walks down and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's the hillbilly and he's got the dog Zeke. Well, I ain't going into no place that don't want no Zeke because he's my best buddy. Yep, yep, yeah. The the, the sort of the religious, you know, like they tackled religion and oh, yeah. it was just, uh, I, I think now when we make sci-fi and we make horror, it's more about the the weird factor and the twist and the, but but, well, I think that's probably why Black Mirror was so great. Because it it was an anthology series that started addressing a lot of those ideas about our sort of contemporary, you know, t- techno dystopian, not too distant future, uh, in a yeah. way that you know that other sci fi hadn't really in a while. It's true, and 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 there, I think there are there are bright spots. You know, I I've been a fan of the of the new Batman and new Superman movies 
because they have, they've taken head on the notion of people coming to save you. Do we need them? What does that mean? What's the oversight? Uh, what happens when Superman is gone? I thought, okay, all right, we're, it, now we're, now we're in some Frank Miller territory here about what does society need from its heroes? Did you watch The Boys? No, no. Is it is it good? I haven't oh, seen it. Yet. It was our favorite. It was Lydia and my favorite show last year. It's on Amazon. There's only there's one season of it. I think the second season's coming out soon. But it is phenomenal because it it is about this cluster of superheroes. But it 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 deals a lot with what that means and and social media and perception and corruption and you know duality and it's it. It's, I honestly think you would love the show. You, as soon as we're done with this podcast, you can go watch it immediately. <laughs> I, if your son's into that stuff, I think he would dig it too, because it's just, it's such a cool show and such a really, really, really great. I think you'll love it. I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to check it out. I, cause I, you know, as you, as, as I, you and I have discussed many times, there's, there's no excuse for, for dumbness in science fiction. <laughs> you know, no. you you can make something smart and interesting and educational and also make it really fun uh, and exciting. Well, there, there's, that, there's that really important creative question <clears throat> that I think that's easy to not ask, but, you know, someone that I knew who worked on The Daily Show years and years ago said that Jon Stewart always said, you know, what is this about? Like when you strip everything else away, yeah. when you strip the jokes away, when you strip it all away... What is it about? And that's a very that's a very powerful question because yeah, the, some things are like fast food; they don't have to be about anything. They can just sort of be fun, and that's fine, you know. But you'll probably forget them, and you'll probably shit them out and forget them, you know, yeah. almost immediately afterwards. But you know, like if you're really if something is really important to you, if you can't answer that fundamental question like in a sentence or two, what is this about? Then you probably still have some work to do, or maybe it's not maybe it's not what you thought it was. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, I, my son years ago, he watched Wizard of Oz. And then I explained to him that Wizard of Oz was, because it came out in 1939. It was an isolationist propaganda movie. And you, you see that in Dorothy's speech at the end. You've been taking on this wonderful magical ride. And then Dorothy essentially says to you, like, the best place, there's no place like home. And she says, you know, if I want an adventure, I don't have to look farther than my own backyard which the message in 1939 was, we don't need to get involved. Don't go overseas, stay in camp. Oh, wow. I didn't even, I totally didn't get that at all. That's incredible. <laughs> Is that, do you know that for a fact or are you putting pieces together? Uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it seems so painfully obvious watching it and watching the year that it came out. It's the same year I watched the old cartoon of Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. And wow, what a piece of propaganda that was because it's Gulliver, basically the Lilliputians and, and they're fighting with the other little people. And Gulliver is the United States being like, listen, you silly Europeans, what is your war even about? This war is about nothing. And you all just need to back off. And that un until Pearl Harbor, that's how people felt. Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I'm... It makes me want to do like a show with you or a podcast called What's It All About, where we yeah. basically, we take things because out of context, you know, like whatever, um, 
Night of the Living Dead or or right. or or Wizard of Oz or whatever out of context like oh these are these were such forward thinking great movies and of course they hold up on their own as movies without being about anything but the idea of taking something that's sort of a cultural centerpiece and for the current generations who don't have the context for like but here's what was going on at the time that consciously or unconsciously the filmmaker was commenting on or the you know like or or it it could have been it could have come from this that was going on in society at the time so it could actually be about this that or the other could be a really interesting because we never think about that you watch these pieces you go that's really fun you know but without the context like you don't it's sort of like watching old warner brothers cartoons and going yeah i don't get half the references bugs bunny's making i'm entertained by them but if I understand, like, oh, that that voice he did is a satire of this actor from this movie who was doing right. this thing. If you understand that and get the reference, like, wow, that just kicks it up a whole notch. Oh yeah, I always I I, I always thought that that you can't you can't teach art in a vacuum, whether it's painting or writing or movies. You know, when I was in high school, I I we I was lucky to have a film teacher. Uh, remember in uh, Star Wars, the new Star Wars, they had the Hosnian system. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure J.J. Abrams, did he go to Crossroads? Because we had a film teacher named Jim Hosney. Oh, interesting. I'm going to look that up right now. Well, Jim Hosney showed us all these French movies by Jean-Luc Godard. And I used to wonder, like, why are they, why are, are they all such whiny bitches? They're all just so cynical and sour and bumbling around with this dark cloud over their head. Well, then I, I learned French history. And I was like, oh, you guys were the shit. And then post-World War II, you were humiliated in the war. And then you spent the next 20 years losing your empire piece by piece. Oh, my God, no wonder you guys are so depressed. You're the, you're the great Centauri Republic. <laughs> so J.J. Abrams went to Palisades Charter High School. Oh, he did. So I wonder. Oh, I wonder where the Hosnian system came from. Huh? I mean, may, maybe, I mean, you know, like I'm sure... All those scripts had a lot of contributors, didn't they? So I would imagine, yes. I would imagine that someone in there uh, uh, probably somebody in there went to Crossroads and somebody took a class from Jim Hosney. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which you know, like that's probably pretty nice to be a professor and have to be a teacher, a professor, and have your name like cemented into yeah. uh, into a, a, a Star Wars canon. That is pretty darn cool. I mean, it's, have you thought about, uh, you know, like, are you, are you ever going to be a professor? Are you ever going to, I know you give lectures, I know you, you educate, but have you ever thought about having a longer tenure somewhere? I thought about it. You know, I think because of my dyslexia, school and I never got along. So I'm always leery of academia because uh, I had to struggle so hard. But yeah, I always wanted to be a history teacher. I always thought it would be really cool because I, because history, I had history teachers who changed my life. They made me from, you know, uh, a morose, angry kid into realizing that there might be something to me. It was a Western Civ II. First time I was like, oh, maybe I'm good at something. So I'd like to do that for other kids. But um, I'd have, right now I got a little too much on my plate. Well, of course there's a lot on your plate, but it also breaks, it also breaks my heart that there was this idea that dyslexia was tied at all to intelligence that people thought those things were the same thing because you're, you know, one of the smartest people I know. And I would, you you know, like you never, 
you know, and someone like Henry Winkler too, who struggled with dyslexia and wrote a whole series of children's books about dyslexia. It's like, yeah, those, that's just a thing. It's not connected to your capacity to, you know, like it just, I, I really hope we're at a place now where people understand that those, those two things don't, aren't related in that way. I think we are. I mean, I obviously, we're, we're nowhere where we used to be in the 1980s where teachers just thought I was lazy. Mm-hmm. I think also having celebrity parents kind of gave the impression of like, well, he's just a brat and he's just goofing off because he thinks he can get away with it. I think not all my teachers, but I do think a couple of them sort of had that preconceived notion. Right. And if, I mean, if it wasn't for my mom having constant meetings with these teachers saying like, listen, there's something called dyslexia. He's been tested at the Marion Frostic Institute. It's been proven. He's trying. He needs to learn differently. He needs to work smarter instead of harder. And he changed everything, obviously. Otherwise, I probably would have been on the heroin needle. Oh, my God. That's incredible. That's really incredible. Well, well yeah, they, they, had no, they had no accommodations back then. You know, now a kid, if you can show that you've been tested, uh, the schools will bend over backwards to give you accommodations. But my mother literally had to fight for everyone, like untimed tests and making sure I was tutored and also taking all my books and putting them on audiobooks at the Braille Institute for the Blind, having them read onto cassette, which is, you know, why my why I put so much energy into the audiobook version of everything I write. It's so ironic that people or that people would have assumed like, oh, you know, spoiled kid, you know, celebrity parents who probably don't give a fuck. And it's like, you know, because your dad is like a workhorse. Your yeah. mom also was a workhorse and was super invested in you <laughs> and what, I mean, it just, it's, th- those are things that, you know, obviously that uh, tabloids don't write about, but goddamn, I'm so glad to hear that you were able to have that in your life. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, the, the assumption is I grew up very privileged and fucking A, I was privileged because I was privileged to have a mom who recognized I was dyslexic and did something about it and basically saved my life because God knows who I would have been. Uh, you know, had I not been diagnosed, had I not found accommodation skills that I still use to this day. Wow. So your parents were greatest generation. Yeah. Dad was in World War II, combat engineer. Um, and mom was, I think, class of 1944, class of 1945. So yeah, they were total hardcore greatest generation. So they, they, they sort of skipped baby boomer because you're Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very, I, I, one more reason I'm privileged is my friends, they had baby boomer parents. So they, the divorces, the drugs, the materialism, you know, my friends complaining of like, oh, my dad's got this new girlfriend. She's my age, you know, things like that. My parents, my dad was home every night at seven o'clock. My mother would read to me every night. And the audiobook started because when she had to go work, if she was shooting late, she would finish the book on audiobook. She would record it. So basically, if she couldn't make it at home, I could play the cassette of my mom reading Phantom Tollbooth. Oh my God, that's incredible. By the way, I'm sure those books were probably beautifully performed because your mom was an amazing performer. Do you have those tapes still? I've got, you know what? I do, and I should put them on on CD before they degrade completely. But yeah, I've got this Academy Award-winning actress reading the Phantom Tollbooth. How cool is that? That's really, really incredible. I, that is, 
I mean, that that's one of those things that can kind of makes you a little misty because you're like, wow, she really put in the time. Like she cared that much. And so, you know, the fact that you turned out to be a cool adult who's really smart and really engaged and really compassionate. It's like, well, you, you can see the math there. It's like you had great parents who were really invested in you. And it's not a, it's not a secret why you would have become, turned out to be the adult that you became. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm doing a I'm doing a, a series now for the History Channel called History at Home. They're doing little five minute vignettes of people sort of giving you a, a, a quick little history lesson. And I'm one of them. And the first one I did was on the man who taught us to wash our hands, Ignaz Semmelweis. And I do it all in one take. And I'm passionate. And I'm and the reason it's so good is because when I was a little kid, my mother told me that exact same story because my mother was a closet scientist. Uh, the world didn't give a shit. The world wanted sexy Mrs. Robinson, but my mom used to read to me a book called The Microbe Hunters, the wow. history of how human beings discovered microbes and what that meant for disease. And she used to show me these old movies, you know, because back then we used to make movies celebrating these people, like The Life of Louis Pasteur, uh, the man who discovered, and this is important for millennials, the guy who discovered a cure for syphilis. Wow called The Magic Bullet, and it was amazing. And she used to show me these BBC miniseries, docudramas about Semmelweis and about Pastor and Lister. Uh, so my mother imparted me with this curiosity, which, thank God, she also gave me the tools to learn about it. Was your mom friends with Hedy Lamar? He wasn't, but my dad was sued by Hedy Lamar. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, they settled out of court. It was fine. It was amicable. But, you know, remember in Blazing Saddles, he used Hedy Lamar, Hedley Lamar. Oh, I had no idea. See, this is again, this is like the why behind. I had no, I thought it was just a play. I thought it was just a harmless play on the name. I had no idea. Well, she took him to court for that. And and he, he was fine. He was like, fine, you're right. You're right. Here you go. Here you go. Because she was also a closet scientist. Yes. And... You know, it it was interesting that uh, I I just think it's great that at a time where it probably would have been easier to go, well, you know, I don't really know what to do with this because society is kind of fucked up the way it's fucked up that your mom still found a way like, well, I'm I'm still passionate about this and I'm going to pursue it and I'm going to pass it on to my son. Like it's 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 I don't know. It's it's just such a. It's just such a great, beautiful, strong choice at a time when it would have been easier to not do that. Yeah, it was, I was her only audience. You know, the rest of the world didn't, didn't care that she loved the microbe hunters and wanted to teach the world about the man named Leewen Hoke, who discovered the microscope and, and looked at the scrapings of his teeth to see that there were things living on them. Uh, so she would tell me these stories. And of course, because she was a great actress, they were exciting. And so I was enthralled. I was like, oh, wow, tell me more about Leeuwenhoek. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, too, is having someone who's not just interested in something, but who has the ability to convey those ideas in, an, yeah. in, in a way that is interesting or theatrical or, you know, it's like, wow, she was, to, to, to be your mom, she was pulling from every, uh, every corner of interest and expertise that she had between the artistic side and the performance side and the, and the scientific side. 
and then just focusing it all at you. I mean, that's a, that's really lovely. Well, you know, she, she made me very much aware of the gap between those who know and those who communicate. Uh, because this, and, and as I got older, I'm like, wow, this is the problem. This is why sometimes we elect so many dum-dums because the smarty smarts, they can't talk to you. They can't make what they're trying to convey interesting. Uh, and so we elect someone who's a great talker, but it's got nothing to say. You know, my, I, I don't know if we talked about this the last time I was, uh, you and I spoke, but my mentor, the man who taught me how to write was Alan Alda. Oh, he is the best. He's the best. And he actually runs a foundation now that he started that teaches scientists to speak English. Yes. I, he was on the podcast a couple of years ago. We talked about, he does that through improv. He gets them to open up and teaches how to communicate through improv and like, holy shit, who would have thought, you know, that the idea that we have this idea of separation between art and science and like, well, scientists are this and artists are this and that. And it's like, yeah, but you know, everything should be, everyone should be a little bit of everything because it all yeah. like that interdisciplinary study can really, really help. Yeah. He's, he's such a, he's such a beautiful soul that Alan Alda. He's wonderful. And he and my mom were really good friends and they would, they would tell each other science stories. They would, they would discover these things. And, you know, Alan was the host of Scientific American. So they were both very curious. You know, I still remember, I gave a lecture at West Point that my mother had given me when I was a kid, the man who invented the M1 carbine, the semi-automatic rifle that my dad carried in World War II, was invented by a cop-killing bootlegger. Oh, my God. The guy was in jail. He was in the hole. And to keep his mind occupied, because he, he was a gun fanatic, he came up with the idea of this gun that uses the energy of the round firing to eject the shell and load a new one. And he started right making plans for it, schematics in his jail cell. And the hero of the story, and this is what I told the cadets at West Point, the hero of creation is not just the creative person. It's the champion of the creative person, the person who stands next to that creator and says, I believe it. And in this case, it was the warden of the prison who saw Williams drawing the schematics. And instead of tearing it up and putting him in the hole, he said, I'm going to give you the chance to build a prototype in my prison workshop, carefully supervised, and allow you to test it. And the prison board hauled the warden up and said, what are you going to do if this man escapes with the gun you're letting him build? And the warden said, I will serve his time. Holy shit. That's crazy. Isn't that amazing? And as a result, the United States military got one of the most successful firearms in world history. Why isn't that a movie? It was. I believe it was Jimmy Stewart. Oh, okay. Was he the warden or was he the inmate? He was the inmate. I think it was Jimmy Stewart. I can't remember. Oh, My I mom showed it to me. gun, you see? It's, it's a... Oh, I'm not even... I started... The, I went down the Jimmy Stewart road and then I just... I immediately <laughs> bailed. I immediately pulled the ripcord. Like, this is not going in a good direction. I'm not going to do this. I can't do this voice. But uh, do you know what the name of it is? I think it was Carbine Williams. Oh my God. <laughs> That's incredible. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout. When you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. I, I honestly really think there's something here when we're talking about pulling all the things together and making them one thing. I think there is a history uh, curriculum for you to teach that takes cinema, sci-fi, horror, whatever, or even just regular cinema. You know, each lecture is a different piece that the class has to watch and then you can unpack it to explain history, what was going on in our culture, what we can learn from it. Because then, it, it, like, you have all of those things in place to be able to do that and relate it to modern audience. Well, you know, that's that's what I try to do in every book I write, is that uh, every, you know, people are always saying that you I write eclectic works. And I'm like, not to me, because it's all the exact same theme, which is adaptation with real life lessons, but encased in the veneer of fiction, be it Minecraft, be it zombies, and, and this new book. I mean, yeah, if you want to see it as just a Bigfoot attack book, that's fine. Or if you want to see it as a real peeling back of the layers of interdependency in our society and, and technology and how we're racing to create a world that is based on comfort at the expense of resilience, just what we talked about, that's why I wrote this. You're, of course, talking about devolution, which comes out June 16th. Because we had to delay it a month, because it one of the many reasons, it wasn't safe to get anybody in the recording studio to do the audiobook. Oh, wow. And do you, is the audiobook performed or is it just read? Oh, no. It is, it is a full cast. Fucking great. It is, it is a World War Z-style cast. We combed the universe to get the best people. And that was the problem is some of these people are awesome, but they didn't have home studios. So Random House literally mailed us, because I'm one of them, mailed us all a giant crate of home equipment that we all had to set up. Uh, which I set up under my stairs. And you'll see on Twitter very soon, we're going to be posting these pictures of me under my stairs. Are you waiting for your owl letter to come? Well, everyone says Harry Potter. For me, it was more like Das Boat. (laughs) I'm in a little room with headphones listening outside, thinking like, okay, they're gone. Yeah, I I, I guess I can sort of see that. I, I love the idea that we even as entertainers are still are having to figure out how to become self-sufficient because it's so easy 
you know, it's easy to rely on everyone setting stuff up for you. You show up, you do the one, you know, the job that you have. Okay, I'm here to present this thing. But now, you know, we are having to do all of these different things in order to kind of just continue to do what we do. And it makes me appreciate even more, you know, the audio engineers and the camera people and the, you know, like they all, all the crew whom I miss working with, you know, when we were on this, on, on sets, like talking to or the, you know, you know, you can never take for granted what an amazing contribution each person makes to create the symphony of a production um, because it, like all the expertise together is vital. And, you know, even when I'm trying to, you know, make videos or stuff, it's like, oh yeah, I'm just not, you know, there are people who specialize in these things and they are amazing at it. And, you know, and I hope a lot of these people are okay if they're not able to work during this time. Oh God. Yeah. I hope so too, because these are skilled professionals. They are trained. These are no different than, than carpenters and mechanics. I mean, just, just rigging up light or rigging up a sound uh, blanket. Oh my God. What I had to do with a curtain rod and uh, a comforter in the little space under my stairs. Oh my God. You know, I cut my finger too. Just like you. Uh, Cause I'm not a trained professional. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I think a, a sign that someone is amazing at their job is that it is easy for the audience to take it for granted, right? Because yeah. you may not necessarily notice camera work because it, if it's, if it's flawless, yeah, it just seems like it's so effortless and so easy. And I was like, well, no, that's, you know, someone's just really good at their job and they spent years getting so good that you would barely notice it. Uh, but it's probably good to take a step back and go, that person is actually incredibly skilled because you know the difference between, you really know when you see bad camera work or you really know when you see, you know, when you hear bad audio or bad this or bad that, you you know, but you never notice when it's, a, when it, you know, it's rare that you notice when it's really good. Oh yeah, I mean, that that's the whole premise of devolution is that we've got this high-end, high-tech eco-community nestled in the Cascade Mountains. And this is not, off the grid. This is this is the grid. Uh, these people, they can tap on their phones for their Amazon uh, drone grocery deliveries. They telecommute to work. That, these are smart homes. So the minute something breaks, it automatically sends a signal to a handyman who shows up in a driverless electric van. And it's the best of all worlds because these people can live with the comforts of Manhattan and then go hiking in the wilderness, in the deep forest uh, on their lunch break. And it's all working until Mount Rainier erupts. And they're suddenly cut off and not just cut off, they're forgotten and winter is coming. And these highly educated, highly paid David Sedaris fans don't know how to change a light bulb. (laughs) They've got no skills. They've got no tools because they don't, I mean, why would they have a toolbox under the, under the sink uh, when a handyman is going to show up? Right. And the way the world was, they were at the top of the pyramid. But the world is suddenly turned upside down and they are the most useless. So it, it, really, it really is about how it really is like a further tale of how a privilege can become a real liability. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Because if you there's nothing wrong with being interdependent. But if you have no resilience built in, if you have no backup plan, backup skills, backup supplies, no even acknowledgement that things could go wrong, then you end up as these characters are cut off, 
isolated, useless. And if that's not bad enough, the volcano has also driven this pack of giant hungry Sasquatch creatures out of their foraging ground. And they need to stock up on calories too for the winter. And here is a pen of sheep. <laughs> They're more comfortable with the idea of interdependency in their, uh, yeah, it's, it's the human's apocalypse story. And it's like this Sasquatch renaissance. Oh yeah, well, because the reason that's why I call it devolution. These both species must devolve in that the humans have to start to work with their hands, because uh, none of them, none of them worked with their hands before. These these were all intellectuals, you know. This this is uh, this is Fran Lebowitz and Ira Glass versus Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was the pitch. <laughs> if they if they make it into a movie wow wouldn't that be fun to watch i mean i you know i have a friend named uh, logan who's in australia he's living in australia his wife's australian and they're living in australia right now mm-hmm. like in the middle of basically a forest and we were facetiming the other day and he's just he's from indiana and he's he's just real um good with his uh hands and his pa- family were farmers and they, he, there, there was an amish influence in his life so he just he knows everything about gardening. He knows how to grow everything. He knows how to crossbreed stuff. He knows wow. how to build things. He was showing me around their home and he was like, oh, and then I put up these beams and then I stained them with this. And, you know, I used, I used vinegar to stay. I'm like, Jesus Christ, how the fuck, you know, like, how do you know all of these things? And he's so equipped for everything to go sideways and in context and by comparison, it just makes me realize like, yeah, I didn't learn anything valuable. Like reading, yeah. learning how to read a teleprompter is, you know, it's pointless in a, you know, d- during a pandemic. Oh God, yeah. I mean, the, the inspiration for devolution was looking around at my group of friends, my community and realizing like, wow, we are really witty and funny and educated and utterly useless. <laughs> we can't do anything. I mean, my friends would laugh at me because I have a vegetable garden. They'd be like, oh, Farmer Brooks. I'm like, well, now that, that little patch of dirt is keeping us in leafy greens. Yep. And so I, I translated that to this eco community where these people, they're, they're the top. They're the lawyers. They're the professors. One of them is sensitivity readers whose job it is to, you know, go through children's books and take out anything that might be offensive. Like, that's a job, and it's a good job. Uh, but it doesn't really prepare you when seven or 800 pounds of muscular hunger is charging at you. Yeah, if you're being attacked by Sasquatches, then it's probably yeah. not... Uh... And the Sasquatch isn't good or evil. They're just hungry. I mean, that's another premise I tried to put in the book because these are urbanites trying to put their bubble morality onto nature. And that does not work because you can't really live in harmony with nature because nature is not harmonious. Nature has its own rule book. And if you want to go into live in nature's house, you are a guest. Wow. That's a really interesting way to put it because we do tend to think that humans are the center of everything or the apex of, you know, of everything. And I think it's really important to remember that we're kind of not, you know, we're, we're guests that have decided to say like, Oh yeah, this is my mansion. Like, well, you're still a guest. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. One of the, one of the, one of the people that inspired me to write this book was, uh, have you ever heard of Timothy Treadwell, the grizzly man? Uh, I, I've heard 
heard of the Grizzly Man, but I didn't know his name. Well, Timothy Treadwell is this guy from Venice Beach, this ex-junkie who grew up in Southern California, and he took it upon himself to fly to Alaska every summer and break the rules and sort of hide in the in the Great Bear Preserve and film them and, in his words, save the bears. Mm-hmm. And he decided he it was going to be his mission in life was to save the bears. And then he was eaten by a bear. Oh, right. I do know the story. Right. I do know the story. Yeah. yeah. And of course he was eaten by a bear because it was late in the season and he should have left. And he came too close to probably a, an older bear who was too old and slow to hunt. And, oh, look, here comes food for the winter. And because the bear was classified as a man-eater, it had to be put down. You know, he decided this. A, a, a city boy had decided that I'm going to be the savior of nature. And he never read the bear's rule book. And look what happened. And so uh, the book, uh, does it have, I mean, obviously you don't want to give anything away, but is there a definitive is there a definitive arc to it? Do you does it sort of land, or do you let the audience kind of decide, like you know what what's good and what's bad? Oh no no no, we're we're very clear about <clears throat> about right and wrong in this, uh, because also the the research, as I mean, you know me in, in researching my books, um, I stayed away from a lot of Sasquatch lore. I sort of stuck to the classic eyewitness accounts. And really sort of postulated that Sasquatch is just an animal. It's just a great ape living in North America. And there's nothing, there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing moral, there's, there's nothing supernatural about it. It's just an animal. So it must be treated as an animal. Uh, but people who've never gone any farther than a petting zoo have absolutely no idea what they're dealing with. And so is it, do you think it's possible that there is a, a higher ape living in forests that has somehow managed to elude definitive discovery at this point? I don't know if it's probable. I mean, I'm skeptical. You'd, you'd have to show me a carcass or a bone with some serious carbon dating, but there's no scientific reason it couldn't happen. It's like if I, like I wrote, I wrote a science fiction comic series uh, called uh, A More Perfect Union about giant ants. Well, you have to do a lot of legwork to figure out how giant ants could physically live because you can't just grow an ant. Uh, The oxygen in the air means they would have to develop lungs. Uh, Their exoskeletons would become so heavy that they couldn't move. So scientifically, remember like in them, the mutant nuclear ants in them, yeah, or Empire of the Ants. Right. You can't just grow a giant ant. So, but with Sasquatch, there is no reason that a great ape could not exist in the Pacific Northwest. So let me ask you this. As we're sort of winding this down, is there anything, besides the fact that I was very relieved to hear that we can't just make big ants, that they, they <laughs> that, that physiologically they would have to change quite a bit in order to just be big ants. Uh, is there anything, is there anything that you're hopeful about at the moment? We always talk about like, you know, like, like what's going wrong and worst case scenarios and stuff. But I'm curious to know what is Max Brooks hopeful about in 2020? Oh my God. I'm so hopeful. I'm, I'm always positive. I'm positive because number one, you have to be, you know, that's a survival skill is being positive. You can't just roll up and die. 
But also, you know, as a student of history, uh, I learn about what incredibly adaptable creatures we are and, and what we've been able to overcome. And so I'm very hopeful for this year. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but I do know we have the power to make it happen. You know, and we also have this unbelievable gift called democracy, which means as citizens, we actually can choose to make things happen. You know, the Chinese, they're, they're stuck. Uh, if their government makes the right choices, good. If their government makes shitty choices, they can't do anything about it. They're passengers on that ship of state. But us, um, we all have a vote. And if we don't like what's going on, we can vote to change it. And therefore, the responsibility is on us. So that's why I write about this. In every book I write, uh, it's always about adaptation, either an individual or a society or a country or a small group, like in devolution. This is how life is. Something comes in and turns it upside down, and you have to change. You know, hearing you talk about adaptation is really interesting because it what it says to me is I think about your family and I think about your dad. I think about how your dad adapted to survive in the business for so many decades. I think about how your mom adapted to survive and took all of her knowledge and fed it into you. And it, you really did sort of on a very fundamental level, you were, taught to adapt <laughs> by, by to. your parents. Oh, yeah. I mean, with dyslexia, nothing came easy for me. Uh, my whole schooling, I couldn't just, you know, I, it used to infuriate me that I'd study for three hours a night, be lucky to pull off a C, whereas the kid next to me studied for 20 minutes, got an A. But because nothing was easy for me, it made me a problem solver. I always had to be a problem solver. I mean, even now, the research I had to do for this book, uh, it obviously I read a ton of research materials and obviously I spoke to real experts, people in the tech field and, and USGS folks about Rainier, but also uh, I had to see if my characters could physically make the tools and weapons because my characters have to make weapons. So I really did it. I actually took the materials that they have at their disposal and the tools they have, which aren't many to see if it was possible. And that's what I've been doing my whole life. And, and I can tell you this now, I did it. And the only reason I don't have a YouTube instructional video on how to do it is because I don't want some kid doing it at home and stabbing his brother. Well, that's very responsible that you chose, <laughs> alt- that you chose altruism over just getting views and likes. <laughs> that's very antithetical to the rest of our culture right. right now. So I really appreciate it. Like, well, yeah, I don't want to show someone how to do this, but maybe, maybe they need to know, Max. Maybe they need to know now. Well, if they're living in the Pacific Northwest, then download Devolution, read it, and it's all there for you. Or listen to the performances. Who all is in the cast, by the oh way? Oh, my God. We, we, got, we got Judy Greer. Oh, she's amazing. Isn't she amazing? She's going to read the main character. And we've got uh, other roles by Nathan Fillion. Mm-hmm. Awesome. We got Jeff Daniels. Great. Uh, we got Kate Mulgrew. Oh, wow. Yeah. Captain we, Janeway. We got Captain Janeway. One of my characters in this, in the book, the only one who's sort of the voice of reason that calls bullshit on everyone and helps them survive, she's 
she's a Yugoslavian who lived through the breakup of Yugoslavia. So she knows what can happen when the shit comes down. We not only got a real Yugoslavian, we got Mira Furlan from Babylon 5. Oh, wow. I mean, you're living in a wonderland. You have all, all these, you know, legends of the of all these amazing uh, people who are part of these genre touchstones. Yeah. And I wanted, I was so clear who I wanted and thank God. And then we got Terry Gross from NPR and Kai Rizdal from Marketplace playing themselves interviewing these people. (laughs) That's fantastic. That's fantastic, Max. That is fantastic. Well, your books are their own thing. And then this genre that you, that you're sort of really helping to feed of like, I'm not just going to go in and read my book. I'm going to have it performed, you know, like it's, it, it, it is a whole next level thing for people. And, and also gives people the opportunity to, there's a real, because a lot of times you either read a book or you listen to the audio book, whatever you think you might have right. time for. I'm going to be in my car, listen to the audio book. This really would encourage people to do both, to read the book and then also to hear the performance of it. Uh, when is the audio coming out the same? I imagine it comes out the same week. Yeah, comes out. That's why we had to delay the, the book. The book has been printed. We've got, you know, we've got, you know, crates of these things sitting waiting to be shipped, but you can't really do it unless there's an audio book at the same time. Cause like we said, the audio book is very important to me. And so we had to wait for that. Okay. Well, I love talking to you. I'm glad you are okay. I'm glad that you have skills that are helping you in this weird time. And, uh, you know, anything I can ever, anything I can ever do for you, by the way, I do think maybe long-term goal, this idea of explaining history through, um, you know, different films, television shows, pop culture events, I think is a, I think it's a winning idea and I think you might be the guy to do it, but you know, any way that I can poke at you in the next several years to give that a thought, I, I think I will probably do. Oh, I, I've, I've never minded being poked by you. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, Devolution is the book. Um, and it is available in June, June 16th, I believe. Yeah. So I hope to see you in person sometime soon. I hope we can, uh, I hope, I hope it is safe to be able to hug it out and, uh, I hope to have lunch again real soon. Someday, buddy. I look forward to that very much. All right, Max. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. The end. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus and the wondery app or on apple podcasts